All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. And to set that in context, chapter 1 left off with Mary early in her pregnancy and Joseph needing some angelic encouragement to opt into God's plan to marry her and to raise this baby as his own. And so chapter 1 ends with Joseph giving this baby the name that the angel told him to, the name Jesus, meaning God saves. Now, as chapter 2 opens, we've moved ahead actually a year, year and a half, couple years. Mary's baby boy is now a toddler, and Herod seeks to kill him. And between the genealogy and the story of the announcement to Joseph in chapter 1, Matthew has emphasized that Jesus is the royal son of David, the king, who will be God with us and who will save his people from their sins. That theme is further developed here in chapter 2 by presenting Jesus as the true king of the Jews whose arrival was even announced to foreigners through a sign in the sky, a star that heralded the king's birth. And this story also prefigures how This king's arrival is going to provoke conflict with worldly kings and worldly powers. And so chapter 2 picks up like this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem is located about five miles south of Jerusalem. It is a small little village. Jerusalem is the Jewish capital, large city. Uh, But Bethlehem is a small village, but it's also of significance because it's the the village where the, the greatest king of Israel's past, King David, was from. And that's why it's so important. And the genealogy of Joseph in chapter one has shown us that he's of David's line. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. We don't get how that came about here. We have to look at Luke's version of uh, the birth of Jesus in order to get the details of how they ended up in Bethlehem and all that. Here we just get the note. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And then he says, in the days of Herod the king. This Herod is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was appointed king of Judea, Galilee, Perea, and Idumea by the Roman Senate sometime around uh, 40 BC or 39 BC. He spent the first couple years just trying to really establish his reign and rule and solidify his rule. And so many scholars consider about 37 BC when he really began to rule. And his territory continued to expand until he ruled over pretty much the entire region. And he ruled up until his death in 4 BC. And Herod was a vicious ruler. He executed uh, wives, he executed family members, or anyone else that he felt like was in his way or might attempt to steal his throne. And at the time of Jesus' birth, he's nearing the end of his rule, the end of his life. And in those latter years, Herod became increasingly paranoid. And that only increased his willingness to eliminate anybody he feared. And that actually shows up here in this story of what happens after Jesus was born. We'll see that here in just a moment. And so uh, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And so we have here the arrival of the Magi. And traditionally, there are three of them. Why? 
Well, because of the three different kinds of gifts that get mentioned in this story, but we don't know how many there actually were. And Magi weren't kings. And so we three kings of Orient are, they're not kings. Uh, Magi were likely some sort of court astrologers. And one of the ways the word was used uh, was for a Persian priestly class who practiced astrology, who practiced incantations to discern the wisest course of action, and sought to provide wisdom to rulers. The word also has more of just sort of a general meaning for magicians or sorcerers or dream interpreters or astrologers and things like that. And in view of the fact that they're following a star, these magi are probably at least some sort of astrologers. And we really don't know any details about them. We don't know exactly where they're from or anything. The text does mention the east, and so perhaps they're from the regions of ancient Persia. And there was a large population of Jews still there in ancient Persia. And that may be a point of connection for them with the Messiah and Jerusalem and all of that. Uh, the one problem with that theory is that the gifts they bring originate more from the southeast in Arabia. Nevertheless, the, the trade routes were well established in the region, and so they could have been in Persia and received those uh, gifts by import in wherever they were at. So wherever they're from, they saw a star that communicated to them a royal birth. They traced the star's message to Jerusalem, and they arrived in Jerusalem. Naturally, if, if there has been a king born of the Jews, you're going to go to the Jewish capital, Jerusalem. And so that's where they go. And they ask, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And look at verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I've always found this sentence a, a bit tragically humorous. By this time, Herod is notoriously paranoid. He even recently killed two of his own sons because he thought they might try to steal his, his throne. And so the, the birth of a new king, like people, like court astrologers from some far lands coming because they've seen a, a portent in the sky, Herod's going to take such a claim with deadly seriousness. And all Jerusalem knows this, and so they're afraid of what Herod might do. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that is Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. At this time period in Jewish history, messianic fervor is high. As one scholar puts it, the Jews in this time existed in a mood of rebellion. They, they want to throw off uh, the shackles of their Roman overlords. And so there's this high messianic fever. And so a star is a noteworthy portent that indeed this baby might be important. It might even be the Messiah. And so Herod needs to investigate these matters, and he calls in those who might know where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And they said to him, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And so uh, they announced that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and they're going to base that on a well-known pro promise from the prophet Micah. Look at verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, Land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These words are from Micah chapter 5 verse 2, and it's a well-known promise about where the Messiah would be born. As the verse notes, Bethlehem wasn't big or important, but it was where the greatest king of the Jews in the past had come from, King David, and so it will be also the birthplace of the greatest king to come, the Messiah. And so, having been informed of that by the chief priests and all of that, 
Herod secretly called for the Magi, verse 7, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He's looking for some information on how old this child might be. And so when Herod kills all the, the boys in Bethlehem, two years and younger, that gives us a rough idea of how long the uh, it had been since Jesus had been born and how long it had been since the star appeared. Herod may have, you know, expanded upwards a little bit, but this tells us that uh, Jesus, by this point, is some sort of toddler. And so even though your Christmas nativity set has Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and the shepherds and the Magi all together in one place, that's not quite the way it happened. The Magi come later when Jesus is a toddler. So armed with the information from the chief priest that Bethlehem is the place, and with the info from the Magi about how old this newborn king might be, Herod sends the Magi on their way, and yet he has evil intentions in his heart. Look at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now, Bethlehem is only, like I said, a f uh, five miles to the south of Jerusalem. And it's a relatively easy walk to get there. So it, we're only about an hour and a half or two hours away on foot. Um, and so he sends them there and he wants them to report back. And his words say, because I want to come and pay homage to him as well. But anybody who knows Herod and anybody who uh, knew how paranoid he was would know that, hmm, I'm not so sure that's the case. And so verse 9 says, After hearing the king, they, that is the magi, went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it came to stop over the place where the child was to be found. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And this hints then at the miraculous nature of this star. It's not just any old star. Somehow the star is still visible. And not just visible, uh, somehow it leads them to the exact right spot. Uh, where this child is. And so they greatly rejoiced at the sight of the star. And verse 11, after they came into the house, they saw the child, notice that, not infant, because he's not newborn, he's now a toddler. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshiped him. And so Mary and Jesus, perhaps Joseph as well, who's not mentioned, maybe he wasn't in the house at this moment, we don't know. And they bowed down and paid homage to him. And then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are the usual kinds of expensive gifts brought to show homage to a king. Think of the Old Testament when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon. She brought gold and spices. And that's what's going on here. These gifts also fit Matthew's intent to show Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. For example, Psalm 72, uh, where all kings come and show homage to God's king by bringing gifts, including gold. Or think of Isaiah 60, where as a result of the work of the Messiah in, in bringing God's kingdom to all the nations, they rejoice and they bring gold and frankincense to him. And so that's the idea here. These guys bring these gifts, typical usual gifts, uh, but they are a way of saying, we believe you are a royal one. And so here's this little child being treated as a king. 
in verse 12, And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And so Herod wanted them to report back, but his intentions were evil. God warned these Magi, who were often dream interpreters, in a dream. And they didn't go home by way of Jerusalem or the same way they'd come. They took another route so they could avoid Herod altogether. And the evil intentions of Herod have been hinted at all throughout the story with ominous notes and minor keys. And now his plan becomes explicit and God sets out to protect the little vulnerable Messiah. Look at verse 13. When they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so God, through an angel, in a dream, in a vision, uh, warns Joseph, and Joseph takes his family, and they're going to uh, head to Egypt. And uh, there had been a large population of Jews in Egypt since the days of the Babylonian captivity, when uh, Jeremiah and others ended up going down to Egypt. Um, at the time of the Babylonian exile, and Jews have continued to live there. And so they're being sent basically to the Jewish community in Egypt, which is a good distance away, and it's going to take them a while to get there. Uh, But uh, Joseph takes the dream very seriously, and so he doesn't wait. Look at verse 14. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. So he wakes up from his dream right in the middle of the night. They pack up their belongings, and they leave Bethlehem and begin heading south to Egypt. And verse 15 notes that he stayed there until the death of Herod. Exactly how long was that? We don't know. Herod died in March 4 B.C., So maybe a few months, maybe a little bit longer. We're not totally sure exactly when this story all goes down in the time period of Herod's life. Uh, But they go to Egypt at least for uh, a little while until Herod dies. And then Matthew connects the flight to Egypt and the eventual return to their homeland to the story of Israel. Look at the second half of verse 15 where Matthew says this happened so that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is one of those texts where we have to try to make sure we hear what Matthew is actually saying and doing. Because when you go back and read where this quote comes from, it's not about the Messiah, it's about Israel. This quote is from Hosea 11, verse 1. In fact, all of the quotes uh, in Matthew's first couple chapters What they do is they connect the story of Jesus to the larger story of Israel and to God's promises to Israel. And that's the case here. Hosea 11.1 is about how God showed his faithfulness by bringing his son Israel out of Egypt. And God shows his faithfulness in Jesus' case too. Hosea is reflecting on how Israel has been facing the oppression of Pharaoh and the killing of the baby boys there and how God delivered them from that through the Exodus. Well, now Israel is facing another tyrannical king, Herod, who's about to kill baby boys as well. But just as God delivered Israel in the days of the Exodus, so God delivers Jesus. And what Matthew is doing is he's showing us that Jesus, as Messiah, is the very embodiment of all that Israel is, all that Israel was meant to be. And so, like Israel of old, he too, as God's ultimate son, is called out of Egypt. 
And within the narrative of Matthew's gospel about Jesus, this shows us that Jesus is going to take on himself the mantle of Israel. Here is God's son as a person, not a nation, but a person who embodies all that God wants for his people. Then Matthew picks up the story in verse 16 by saying, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. So Herod is angry. He realized he's been outwitted. And so he sent men and killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. So the whole surrounding area who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So since the Magi left him without knowing where the boy was and how to find him, he decided just to execute all the boys just to make sure he eliminated all potential threats to his throne. Now, Bethlehem, as we've noted, was a small town. Population estimates range from 300 upwards of 1,000. So how many male toddlers at this time period? We don't really know. It's not going to be tons, 10, 20, maybe 30. Um, and we don't know exactly how many it is. It's it's not hundreds. Um, it's probably in that 10, 20, or 30 range. Uh, and yet, for those, those families, this is devastating. And this reminds us of the challenge God faces in his providence. God had intervened to protect Jesus. He warned the Magi, and he warned Joseph to, to get out of town. But that decision had consequences for the other families in Bethlehem. And that's the difficulty of God's sovereignty. God, as a, a person, has to make real choices, um, and those real choices and real plans, that sometimes leads him to make tough choices. This is difficult, and that's what happens in this case. And once again, Matthew sees in this kind of a deeper realization of a word from the prophets, this time from the prophet Jeremiah. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31.15. And in Jeremiah, the passage refers to the lament over the fact that a foreign king has inv invaded the land and they are taken into exile and thus they are no more. Ramah was the gathering place for, for the Jews to be gathered up and uh, chained together and escorted out of the land into Babylonian captivity. And what the passage in Jeremiah does is it poetically pictures Rachel, who was one of the matriarchs of Israel. She was one of the, the mothers of the sons of Israel. And Rachel had died in childbirth, weeping for her child, weeping for her death. Well, the passage in Jeremiah poetically pictures her weeping over the death of her people at the hands of the Babylonians and being escorted out of the land. But it's set in Jeremiah in the context of God restoring them from exile and the blessings that are going to come when that happens. And so you can see how it fits into Matthew's context. Even though at the time of Jesus' birth, Israel has returned to the land, they're still under foreign occupation and foreign oppression. Herod is a client king of the, the Roman overlords, and he's now enforcing his power by executing baby boys in Bethlehem. The very area where Rachel died, the very area where uh, the Jews were gathered up and collected together to be led away into captivity. 
But Matthew also knows the entire context of the quote. He knows that behind the grief of exile and the grief of oppression, that there's hope for renewal and restoration. And Matthew believes that this little boy is the rightful king who's going to bring all of those hopes to pass. And so he quotes this text here and says that this is ultimately finding its fulfillment in this moment with this this king who's going to be the one to bring restoration and renewal to God's people. Now, verse 9 continues the story and says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Recall that Matthew has already noted that Joseph and his family stayed in Egypt up until the death of Herod. So now Matthew picks up the story at that point and says, here's what happened. God informed Joseph of Herod's death through a dream and and tells them to return back to their land. And so verse 21, Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. So they traveled back north out of Egypt into Israel. But, verse 22... When he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So when Herod died, his kingdom, his lands, were actually divided up by several of his sons. And one of those sons was Archelaus, who was a vicious and kind of brutal ruler, much like Herod himself had been. And so Joseph does not want to go to Judea, where Bethlehem is. He decides to go somewhere else. In fact, God actually instructs him to go somewhere else. Look at the rest of verse 22 and verse 23. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and settled in a city called Nazareth. And so, instead of settling in Judea and in Bethlehem, they go all the way to the north, um, to Galilee and to Nazareth. Now, we know from Luke's account that that's actually where they came from, that they were in Nazareth. They traveled to Bethlehem, and so they've returned back to where they were living before the birth of Jesus. And Nazareth is a small little town about 80 or 90 miles north of Bethlehem. The town itself sat up on a hill overlooking a valley where a number of important Old Testament events took place, and yet the town itself was insignificant and unimportant. Its position on that hill kind of kept it isolated from the surrounding area, and that may actually have been intentional. It seems like it was a fairly conservative place. Uh, And even though it was kind of isolated up on this hill, it was only a few miles from a major Greco-Roman city, the city of Sepphoris. And it's actually reasonable to assume that Jesus and his dad would have worked on construction projects in that city. We can't know that for sure, but it would make sense uh, that that city provided work for them since the city was actually being built during Jesus's childhood years. But in a lot of ways, Nazareth is just a little, unimportant, off-the-grid kind of town. And notice what Matthew says right at the end of the story. He says, this happened so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Matthew doesn't specify any particular prophet. Notice he just says, the prophets. Um, And if you go to kind of Google and you say, where does it say he'll be called a Nazarene? What you're going to find is nothing. (laughs) There's no specific prophet in the Old Testament says that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. So what is Matthew doing? 
Well, Tim Mackey actually probably provides the best explanation of this. Um, Since Matthew attaches it to the prophets in general uh, and says he will be called a Nazarene, um, we can look back at several of the Old Testament prophets where that begin, for example, in Isaiah chapter 11, where it says the Messiah will be called a shoot, will be a branch out of a stump. Well, that promise is picked up by other prophets, and the Messiah is routinely referred to as a branch or a shoot in the uh, Old Testament prophets. Well, the word for shoot or branch is natser in Hebrew or nazer in Greek. And Nazareth is built off that that word. Um, Nazareth is stick town or the town in the sticks. That's the idea. And that may be what Matthew is getting at here when he says the prophets uh, referred to Jesus as a stick, a shoot, a branch, that he will be called uh, a Nazarene. He will be the one who comes out of stick town, out of branch town. So we don't know 100% for sure if that's correct, but that makes an awful lot of sense out of what we see in the Old Testament prophets and what Matthew probably is doing here. Now, before we leave this story, let me just offer a couple reflections. The first is this. Uh, God keeps his promises. Matthew has woven all throughout his narrative reminders of God's promises, promises of a coming king, promises of restoration, promises uh, for hope uh, beyond exile. And those promises were made centuries before, but they're now coming to realization in this little boy, this toddler that was born in Bethlehem. And so even though it's been centuries since those promises were made, God has kept his promises. And not only that, the second reflection I would offer is the arrival of the king. That's what Matthew wants us to see and hear in this story. He wants us to know that Jesus is the king who fulfills and enacts all of those promises that God made. And we'll have to read the rest of the story to see how all of that comes about. But here at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew announces the birth, the arrival of the king. And that's really the heart of the gospel. Jesus is king the rightful king, the true king who will bring God's kingdom into the world. All right, thanks for tuning into this session of the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton to each and every one of you who make this ministry possible by your faithful support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com You can click the Give button, and it'll take you to a page through World Family Mission where you can set up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation. Or you can also uh, decide to support this ministry through signing up for the Study Hub. Uh, You get access to bonus materials and all sorts of things there as well. So thanks a ton for your support.